holiness. Everything we look at reminds us of who you are. Lord, help us to, as we look into your word, really get the picture of who you are and respond in a way that's appropriate to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 11, moving through the Gospel of Mark. And Mark tells the story quickly, and so here we are, chapter 11 already, and it's the introduction to the final week of the life of Jesus. And um, we see chapter 11 begins with Palm Sunday, which was the week before Easter, and, and uh, we've gone through rapidly. It's, it's been great. We'll be interrupted for a couple of weeks because I'm taking some people from here and going to Israel next Sunday, and so I'll be gone for two Sundays, and then when we come back, we'll pick up on that. On Wednesday nights, we're almost finished with the Old Testament after six and a half years or something like that, and so we'll finish that up the first couple weeks after I return from Israel. Now, I'm taking God with me to Israel, so we're just going to shut church down for a couple weeks, and (laughs) no, God will be here too. He gets around, so encourage you to continue to come even when we're not here, but appreciate your prayers as we are over there that we won't cause an international incident or anything. Mark chapter 11 really begins to focus on the authority of Jesus. Authority comes in two different ways. There's an authority that's delegated. When someone is given a particular position, they have the authority that goes along with that position. There's also a sense of authority wherein authority designates the level of someone's expertise. If they know a lot about something, they're said to be an authority in that field. Now, hopefully, and the way it's supposed to work is you find people who are authoritative and you place them in positions of authority that are commensurate with their level of expertise. Quite often it doesn't work that way, but that's the way it's supposed to work. My first real experience with authority came when I was in first grade. And we had just moved, and I was going to a new school. And they asked for volunteers to be hall monitors. And I thought, that sounds great. You're important. They gave you this little sash to wear. And basically, you got to go around and rat out other kids for stuff they were doing wrong. Seemed like a good deal to me. And so foolishly, I volunteered for the position. And I discovered very quickly that it was kind of a thankless job because people didn't respond very well to authority back in those days. The guy that, you know, I would, if I saw someone doing something wrong, I would get the security person from the school and they would go with me and we would go class to class and I'd walk in and look and, nope, he's not here. We'd go into the next class. There he is. And I'd point out some sixth grader that was, that usually said something bad to me and, uh, you know, get them in trouble. I was kind of like the Lisa Simpson of the school. It took me a couple of years to turn into more Bart, but um, that's another story. The point is, I had this authority, and I thought it was pretty cool, but other people didn't think it was so cool. And I've since had all kinds of different positions of authority, and I've found most of the time people don't respond very well to it. When you're in charge, very seldom do people really do what you say. I'm coming up on an Israel trip, and 
Every time I think of Israel, I think, you know, I'm in charge. And that means at every stop, I'm telling people, come on, get back in the bus. And you got a bunch of women in a, in a little gift shop, and they're all trying to buy their cheesy souvenirs. And, and it doesn't matter that I'm the authority. They don't listen. And I'm just, we're going to leave. I'm going to get the bus, and I'm going to, you know, but you never, you can't leave people off in the middle of a, you know, Palestinian area and without, you know, so, but it's a lot of what Jesus endured as well as an authority. But here's the thing. He is our authority, whether we acknowledge it or not. See, Jesus is Lord. That means he's the boss. He's in charge. We are called to respond to his authority, but we can respond to it in several different ways. And we'll see here in Mark chapter 11 some of the possible responses to authority. But I want you to know today, if you're here and you don't even know Jesus and you've never given your life to him and you go, well, he's not my Lord. Yes, he is. He is your Lord. He made you. He has authority over you. Now you can respond however you will, but there are certain consequences to how we respond to the authority of Jesus. Chapter 11 begins, now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany, just up over the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem, they were at the Mount of Olives, and he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt, a baby donkey, tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. Now, he's taken two disciples and he's going, okay, go to this village and you're going to see a donkey, baby donkey. Go ahead and get it and bring it here. And if anybody says anything to you, say, well, the Lord said so, and they'll let you go. So these disciples can choose. If I was one of the disciples, first I would have said, are you sure? I mean, really? A a baby donkey? What are you going to do with that? Or I might have gone to the city, look around and go, this is stupid. You know, come back, sorry, couldn't find a donkey. Now, trying to get a donkey to go with you is a task in and of itself. And especially a, a baby, one that isn't used to being led by a rope and somebody's going to ride him? Bad idea. But the Lord has need of him. Now, he didn't need him in particular. It's that he was going to use a donkey in order to fulfill an, an, uh, a prophecy that had been made back in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, uh, where it said that he would come riding a little donkey that had never been ridden before. But the donkey could have resisted. The disciples could have resisted. The people who owned or were tending for the donkey could have resisted. This just looked like a bad deal all around. But they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. So they did what they're supposed to do. Some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosening the colt? And they said, The Lord said so. And so they said, okay, let him go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And then the little donkey just bucked Jesus off, and the Messiah was laying there going, whoa, no, 
donkey, let him ride him. I wouldn't suggest that you try this. But they laid their clothes out, branches, tree branches on this Palm Sunday and spread them on the road. And he began to ride down on that road toward Jerusalem. And the people who were standing there cried out, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, this had been prophesied, not only that he would ride a donkey, it's much more than that. Back in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel had made the proclamation, had, had quote, said the prophecy, look, there's going to be a day. At this time, they were in captivity in Babylon. There's going to be a day when there's a declaration to go and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That would come more than 100 years later when Artaxerxes would make that declaration. But he said, when that declaration is made, begin to count. In 483 years, the Messiah is going to come. (laughs) That's pretty specific. Now, Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, did all the math. They they are 360-day years and some other things you have to factor into it but basically came to the conclusion that (coughs) the prophecy was in 173,880 days, 483 years, the Messiah is going to come. Now, Palm Sunday was that 173,880th day. This was the time for the prophecy to be fulfilled. As Zechariah had said, riding on a donkey, he's going to do it. Now, that was the plan, and Jesus did what he planned. What amazing authority. What timing for it to happen in that way. And for him to fulfill that prophecy, the disciples had to do what they were supposed to do. The donkey had to do what he was supposed to do. The owners of the donkey had to do what they were supposed to do. And the people who were declaring him to be the Messiah had to praise him as they were supposed to do. And in one of the other Gospels, Jesus said that Somebody had to do it. If the people hadn't done it, the rocks would have cried out and praised him on that day because that prophecy was going to be fulfilled. Now you see the authority of Jesus meeting a donkey, a donkey's owners, a couple of disciples, and a bunch of followers, and everyone responds the way they were supposed to. Everyone receives the authority that Jesus had, and they play their part. They play their role. Now, each of us has a role to play. Each of us has something that God wants to do in our lives. We're all given gifts. We all have callings. There are things that he wants us to accomplish. Now, you may think that your gift isn't much. Well, I'm just a donkey. Well, if you're a donkey, then do what donkeys are supposed to do. Do what God has called you to do. Respond to his authority. Because there are alternatives to responding to his authority, and they aren't very pleasant. Because he is the Lord, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. You have a role to play. I have a role to play. Our roles may seem really insignificant, but it's so important that we respond. Why? Because he's the Lord, and you're supposed to do what he says. And so we see this as an example of what happens when everyone does what they're supposed to do and responds to the authority of Jesus. Now, 
as we read on, we see someone who doesn't do what they're supposed to do, and it's an old fig tree. Jesus, well, first, after he came down to the temple, he looked around, checked things out, and then left again. And the next day, verse 12, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. He was hungry, wanted some figs, saw a fig tree. Comes to the fig tree, there's no figs on it. And look at what he does. In response, in verse 14, Jesus said to it, No one eat fruit from you ever again. He curses the fig tree. He goes, you're a fig tree. You were supposed to have figs for me today. I get in a bad mood when I don't eat. No, he didn't say that. But he goes, you're cursed. You're not going to bear figs again. Now, if you skip down to verse 20, he talks to the disciples about it because they came the next day and the thing was dead. In the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. Duh. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. So he says, I'm going to talk to you about this fig tree. Now, biblically, the fig tree often was a, was a symbol of the nation of Israel. There's a lot more going on here. Jesus isn't just hating figs. But this, this fig tree that's not bearing figs when Jesus is hungry is the equivalent to the nation of Israel where Jesus had just come and presented himself as the Messiah, a handful of people accepted him, but a whole bunch of people had rejected him. And now this fig tree the next day becomes a picture of those who don't respond. Yes, there were some people who responded to his authority in a positive way. One donkey, a few people, and a few fans. But here's a fig tree which represents the nation of Israel, and on the whole, they rejected him. They weren't saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were saying, I don't care what you say about yourself, we're not going to follow you. They were rejecting his authority. And so now this fig tree isn't doing what it's created to do, and he curses it and says it'll never do it again. Seems harsh, but... There are a lot of examples in the Bible that hint at this sort of thing. That if you aren't responding to his authority by doing what you're created to do, if you're not bearing fruit as you are designed to bear, then, well, what is he? Over in John's gospel, Jesus said, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he's just going to cut it down and toss it in the fire. It's good for nothing. Now, the idea is, just like several of Jesus' parables, if you don't do what you're designed to do, you may lose the ability to do even that. There was a parable of some stewards who were given a certain amount of money to invest. And 
one of the stewards invested really well and had a good payoff, and, and he got rewarded for that. But one of the stewards was afraid to take a chance with that which had been entrusted to him, and so he took it and buried it in the ground. And Jesus said that servant would be rebuked as being evil because he's not investing the talent that was entrusted to him. And so he is judged severely because of it. What this tells us, and many other passages of Scripture tell us, is that God has given us a certain capacity to do certain things. Now, somebody may have the job of being an orator. Someone may be a great teacher. Someone else may be a donkey who carries things. Someone else may be an investor. Someone else may be someone who serves well or whatever. But the point is, be serious about how you respond to what God has given you. Because when the master, the Lord, uses his authority to tell you to do something, gives you an opportunity to do that. If you squander that opportunity, and if you don't do what he's telling you to do, you may find yourself out in the cold and losing that which has been even entrusted to you in terms of capacity to serve. And there are many people who, when they don't use what they have, they find out later that they're losing the ability to even use it. How many of us, when we were in school, learned a foreign language? And some of, some of you probably three or four years of a foreign language. And at the time, depending on your level of cheating your way through that language, but at the time of your peak, you might have even been dreaming in that language, had reached a level of some sort of fluency. But what happens when you don't use that language? Often you find yourself later going, man, I wish I had paid attention. I wish I had remembered it. Today I could use that language, but now, man, I can order from a menu, and that's about it. And boy, I hear, like, we have our ministry to take the presents down to the kids in, in Pedregales, and you think, man, it'd be great if, if I knew Spanish and I could go down and really communicate. And I'm frustrated every time I go to Mexico or I go to Central America or somewhere where they speak Spanish and I'm stuck speaking in English and, you know, I, I can't, I'm sitting there in a restaurant and I don't even know how to say well done on my meat. And, and it's like, guy, you know, God could have used it. At one time, maybe I had it, but I didn't use it and it kind of shriveled up. It's kind of like, you know, when you're young, you have that ability to make your face smile. But if you don't do that, then eventually as you get older, everything shrivels up like a, like a fig tree that's been cursed, and you can't even do that anymore because it's been so long since you did it. And here, the idea is there are people who are designed with certain gifts, and, and God's authority tells you, bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, there's a curse that goes along with that. The curse is, ultimately, if you don't use it, you may lose it. And, and so here, that happens to this fig tree that just isn't doing what it was created to do. Now, back up in verse 15, which comes between the cursing of the fig tree and the explanation of it, Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem. And he went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. 
And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then after he cleaned house, he taught and said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching, as other gospels tell us, because he taught with authority. And then as evening had come, he went out of the city. What a scene. He's come to the temple. The temple that was created, and at the time that it was built, it was prophesied that Jesus would one day be in that temple and that he would restore the glory to the temple, that it would be the greatest of all temples because it was the temple that Jesus himself would walk into. Now, they had turned it into something different. It was supposed to be a place where people could meet God. It was supposed to be a place where you could pray for the world, that everyone would see the example of that place, and wow, people would be gathered together and would be glorifying God, and what a wonderful purpose that God had for the temple. But they had turned it into just a big scam. See, you had to bring a perfect animal for a sacrifice, and so what they would do, they would inspect the animals and say whether they were good enough. And they would take this little lamb or this dove and they would look at it and go, yeah, it's not quite right. But today's your lucky day because we're selling pre-approved lambs and doves and things like that right over there in that booth and you're set. So we'll be glad to take care of you. Of course, those are, there's a fee for that kind of convenience and they're sold at an inflated price. And they were just using the temple as a way to make money, as a scam place. It was no longer a house of prayer for all nations, but it was a place where a handful of people could be the beneficiaries of their religious activity. Now, you think, what's new? I mean, today, look at what's done in the name of churches Look at how much stuff is happening around churches that has nothing to do with anything except a way to find success. I mean, frankly, I think when you take the message of a church and you turn it into 10 steps for success and here's how you can have a better life and if you give, then you're going to get rich and all. There are so many ways to do the same thing, work the same system, where the church is just there as a way to increase the riches of certain people at the expense of other people. And I think that the Lord is just as upset by it today as he was then. In those days, he went in and literally ripped the place apart. He kicked over tables. People who were trying to run out with their stuff, he wouldn't let them go. Now, a couple interesting things about Jesus. Now, there are people who would say that Jesus is this really skinny, sissy, kind of meek and mild guy because that's their image of Jesus. It's hard to imagine a guy like that cleaning house at the temple. But on the other hand, don't be so fast because if you think that Jesus was this big studly monster because that's your idea of perfection and he was a perfect man, therefore he looked like Brock Lesnar, 6'3", 285, 4% body fat, you know. Try riding a baby donkey when you're Brock Lesnar, you know. It's not, a man explain to your wives who Brock Lesnar is really quick and then we'll come back. But... (laughs) (laughs) two-time NCAA wrestling champion, current UFC heavyweight champion, okay? Um, But (laughs) 
So the same guy who had the power to tip over these tables is the same guy who could ride a baby donkey. Weird. But he had the authority, and therefore he could do things that might have been uncharacteristic with his capacities. Was he huge? Was he tiny? I don't know. He was whatever he needed to be. But the question is, in terms of response to his authority, it's his house. What do you do with it? Do you do what he says? Do you say, you're the boss, so we will do what you tell us to do? Or do we turn the church into a place where, well, people aren't into prayer, we don't want to do that, and you know, this message of the gospel is kind of unpopular, and so we need to turn this into more of a social club. Or we need to turn this into more of a political agenda. Or we need to turn this into all about you and make man at the center. No, we don't need to turn it into anything. We need to let it be what he says it's supposed to be. He is the Lord of the church. He is the authority. Do we respond to him or not? I can think of all kinds of cool things that you could do in church other than doing what he says to do. But since he is the Lord, I want to do what he wants us to do. Now, every day I have stacks of mail and I have lots of calls and emails and people have all kinds of ideas of cool things that we could do that don't involve what he says the church is supposed to be about. And I'm sorry, but he is the authority. And I want to respond to his authority by sticking with what he says to do, and that is focusing on the word of God. For some people, they wish I'd get involved a little bit more politically. But I'm sorry, that's not what this house is about. There are other people who think, you know, we need to make more social comment. I'm sorry, but that's not what this house is about. We're about the gospel. We're about the word of God. We're about praying. We're about caring about the world and and praying how we can make a difference for them. And when we begin to lose our focus, inevitably, there are going to be tables that fill up with stuff that doesn't have anything to do with that which God has called us to do. And If he would come here, how many tables would he tip over? How many things would he see that we are spending our time and energy on that he would say, that's not my idea of what you ought to be doing? And we can't decide what church should be based on what we think people want. We can't design church to make it friendly to the unbeliever. Do I want our church to be friendly to unbelievers? Absolutely. Jesus died for them. I want them to come here and find out how their lives can be changed. But am I going to let them set the agenda for how we do that? No. We have one boss of this church, and it's not Dave Rolf. It's Jesus Christ. He's the Lord, and I want to do what he tells us to do because I want to re- him to respond. I want to respond to his authority. I don't want him coming into my place of business and having him kick the tables over because I'm turning it into something that's about me instead of something that's about him. And that's why, you know, you don't see my face splashed all over everything. You go to our website, it's not all about Dave, plus the fact that I'm ugly. But (laughs) besides that, I want it to be about Jesus. I want it to be about the gospel and about God's word. I don't want to set the agenda. I don't want to be the visionary. That No, I want him to be the visionary. And so here we see some examples. A donkey that does pretty good. A, a, a fig tree that doesn't do so well. The religious capital of worship. 
It's not doing so well. Bunch of people, street people, hanging out on the road. They do pretty well, and they praise him. Now, as we read on, skip down to verse 25 there. After Jesus talked about this, and oh, by the way, I wanted to mention, when Jesus was commenting on the withered fig tree, we, we noticed that he says, you can have authority too if you do what I tell you to do. We saw it already in the two disciples who went and said, the Lord has need of this donkey, so we're taking him. It's a nice feeling when you know what God's telling you and you can speak in his authority. But then there in verses 23 and 24, he says, if you're doing what I'm telling you to do, you can move mountains. Because prayer will allow you to see the authority of God functioning in your life. You can bring about a lot of changes if you're doing what he tells you to do. But now then in talking about prayer in verses 25 and 26, he says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's a tough one to swallow. God says, the Lord says, when you are doing what I tell you to do, make sure that you utilize that power to forgive that I have demonstrated. If you're going to pray, if you want God to work in your life and through you, if you want to use your gifts to bring glory to him, then you forgive other people. Don't expect God to use you. Don't expect him to answer your prayers. Don't expect him to forgive you. If you're bitter against people, if you won't forgive them, you're holding things against them, it doesn't work that way. When Jesus here just a couple of days later hung on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, do you want the power of God to work in your life? Do you want to wield his authority? Then a place to start is in forgiving others. Because if you don't forgive others, he won't forgive you. Now that sounds radical. You're going, wait a minute. If I hold a grudge against somebody else, God's not going to forgive me? Sounds crazy to me too. But Jesus said it, and he has the authority to say it. And whatever it, said, whatever it means, I just want to say I believe it. What do I do with that? I want to forgive anyone no matter what they've done to me. I don't want to be someone who carries grudges. And I don't want to pretend that I can do God's will while I'm not being a forgiving person. So often in our faith, we have such strong opinions about everything, but we look down our noses. When the church should be a place where you come and, and you're accepted and you feel the love of Jesus and his offer of forgiveness, so often the church is a place where you come and you know everyone's looking at you and judging you and looking down their nose at you. We are all guilty of that. God begins to work in our lives. We get better. Now we look around and we expect everyone else to be better in the same way that we are. Well, Jesus said, my authority tells you, number one, you forgive others. He must have known that this is a stumbling block for many of us. But he says, you have the authority that I'm giving you to forgive others. And if you do, you get in on the deal and I forgive you. If you don't, I don't forgive you. I don't want to deal with you. 
I'll curse you like I'll curse the fig tree that didn't bear fruit. Because a part of the fruit we're supposed to bear is the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Those are the kinds of traits that are supposed to be manifest in our lives. And a huge part of that is being able to forgive others. So can you do it? Well, it's a place to start. And maybe he starts there because it's one of the things that holds us back, that keeps us from really being the people that he wants us to be. Do you want to be forgiven? Then forgive others. And he says, do you want to have my authority and power work through you? Then you do this, and mountains will move. I wonder how many things God wants to do through us, and just because of our lack of forgiveness, it's not happening. It's holding back what God wants to do. That may sound weird, but that's what His Word teaches. And again, He is the authority. What's my response? I want to do what He says. I want to obey Him. I want to believe what He says and act upon it because I would love to be an instrument of His authority, and the only way that can happen is if I say what He says and do what He does. Now, a lot of people just don't respond to authority at all, and we see at the end of the chapter big-time questioning of Jesus' authority. Verse 27, Then they came again to Jerusalem as He was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, which those three groups together make up the Sanhedrin, these are the religious leaders. They came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, to be asked that question if you don't have authority is really intimidating. You know, you do something and then somebody goes, why do you have the authority to do what you just did? Boy, I remember how chilling it was when I, my phone would ring and Pastor Chuck would be on the other end and he'd say, Dave, by whose authority? I'm like, oh boy. I knew I was in trouble. But they came to Jesus and this wasn't a threat to him at all because he said, all authority has been given to me. And so they questioned his authority and he played with them a little bit. He said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll answer that if you, if you answer this. Tell me, was John's, the, John the Baptist, was his baptism from heaven or was it from men? Well, they were like, oh, shoot, how are we going to answer this? Because if they said that John's baptism was from heaven, then Jesus would say, then how come you don't believe John when John said you need to follow me? But if they said what they really thought, John was a nut and his baptism was just man-made, then the people would have ripped them apart because the people really venerated John the Baptist. So they said, uh, we don't know, in verse 33. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, there's something about someone who has real authority. They don't have to flash their badge. They don't have to defend their authority. They know that they have authority. And when it comes to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, he won't defend his authority. He won't prove to you that he is the Lord. He's not going to do little magic tricks for you so that you will follow him. He just tells you plainly, and he's proven many times in the past, he's the Lord. He doesn't defend his authority. There are some people who haven't accepted Jesus Christ because they're just a little skeptical about 
his claims of authority. And they'd just like him to defend himself. You know, I might believe in you if you could explain the problem of evil. Why does evil exist? I might believe in you if you would bring peace on the earth. If you would make, if you would heal AIDS, then you might have my ear. Jesus has all authority. And he knows no matter what he does, there are some people who aren't going to believe in him because believing in him would be giving up their own perceived authority. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to quit living the way they live. And so nothing would prove it. And so when those people come and challenge him, he doesn't argue with them. He doesn't play that game. He doesn't defend himself. Frankly, I think an awful lot of what we do as Christians, we're trying to defend God. And a lot of what is in the name of apologetics, it's important to be able to reason with people who legitimately have some good questions. But often we find ourselves arguing with people that aren't going to be convinced no matter what we would tell them. And Jesus just doesn't bend over backwards to prove himself to those people. He basically says, I'm the Lord. You do what I say or you don't do what I say. What you do in response to my authority really doesn't affect my authority one bit. So let the chips fall where they will. You either obey me or you don't. And I think sometimes we ought to leave it at that when he does. We don't need to defend him all the time. C.S. Lewis said, you defend God the way you defend a lion. Open the cage and get out of the way. <laughs> and you know what? I don't need to defend him. And I shouldn't be threatened by people who reject his authority. Often, when I'm talking to people and I share God's word with them and what it says, it becomes really apparent to me that they're not going to do what God says no matter what. Why is it that I feel like I need to talk them into it? I'm through doing that. I really don't want to talk people into doing the right thing. All I can do is say, here's what he says. Do it or don't. It's your choice. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you can reject him. I can tell you he's the Lord. I can tell you he died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He, he can give you an eternity in heaven. Hey, take a look in the mirror. Look what you've done with your own life. You really like what you've done with it? Come on, you've messed it up completely. However, I'm not going to get down on my knees and beg you. We're not going to have 12 verses of just as I am so I can talk you into coming to Jesus. He's the Lord. Do what he tells you to do or don't. It doesn't matter. He gives you that choice, and it's not going to change him if you don't do it. You're just another fig tree that didn't bear fruit, frankly. Or he'll go onto the donkey down the street. But he gives us an opportunity and he has the authority, we have to decide what we're going to do with it. For many of us, we've bowed the knee to him. We call him Lord. We say that he has authority. Yes, I responded to his authority. I accepted his son. I'm going to heaven. And then he tells us to do things, and we just don't do it. Amazing. That we think that our will is more important than his that somehow we have authority that trumps his authority. How can we live so, how can we be so satisfied ignoring what he tells us to do? Now, what are you supposed to do? I don't know. 
Where is it that he is laying a line down for you and saying, here's my authority, what are you going to do? Are you going to be a good little donkey and go along with what I'm telling you to do? Are you going to bear fruit? Are you going to worship me? Or are you going to reject me? That's okay either way. I'll be fine. I'll get done what I need to do. Now, you might go, I'm doing so much that he's told me to do. And you might be saying, I don't even know what he wants me to do. So how do I respond to his authority? Well, I would suggest that for most of us, there's probably at least one thing that if I say, what one area has God told you what to do and you haven't done it? Probably something pops into your head right away. You know there's an area of your life where you're not bowing your knee to his authority. Now, maybe you are in a bunch of other areas, but you may be blocking what God wants to do because in that one area, you're being disobedient. The intelligent response to his authority is to submit to it. And if his authority is speaking to you in some area of your life, I suggest you go along with it. I suggest you do it. There's not much of a future for you being the Lord of your own life. You know, there's a lot of discussion among people as to, can you be a Christian and really not have Jesus be the Lord of your life? And people argue back and forth on that question. All I would say is, why would you even want to be a Christian if you're not going to do what he says? If you're not going to bow to his authority? If your response is, nah, why do you even want to call yourself a Christian? I don't know. I can't find where that magical line is that makes you, you've said nah enough that you're not really a Christian. And if that's you and, you know, did you used to be a Christian and you aren't now or can you become a Christian and do whatever you want? And I, uh, he doesn't make that clear. Not so I'm certainly not going to. All I'm going to say is there he is. And he's speaking to you and you know it. And he's the authority whether you like it or not. How are you going to respond to his authority? How am I going to respond? How will our lives change when we start really letting him be the boss? When we start really acting like he is in charge? That's the question that's laid out for us. And we can either be the little donkey we can be the withered fig tree. We can be the disciples who do what he says. We can be the critics who skeptically doubt everything. But ultimately, there he is on the throne with all authority. Will you let him tell you what to do? Let's pray. Lord, we're sorry for all those times when we ignore your authority or we weasel out of it or we try to cash in on it or whatever but we want you to be the Lord for us we know that you are help us to respond correctly to your authority in Jesus name amen let's all stand